welcome and thank you for tuning in to the Visit the Northeast of Scotland podcast with me, your host, Jacqueline Vallenacher. Today we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Fiona Jane Brown, who previously shared with us local traditions and character traits of the people of the Northeast. In this episode, Fiona Jane speaks about how the local dialect Doric has evolved and continues to be part of the daily life. She also describes some of her tours and how people love hearing about the darker side of Aberdeen, as well as a few prominent people who have contributed to the greater good. You mentioned uh, that the dialect in this area is Doric. Is that still a language or a dialect that is in use, and are there variations there as well? Oh, absolutely it's in use. I was just thinking that any time I speak to my mom's sister, my aunt, she lives in... Cairnbulg village sort of nearer Fraserburgh. When I'm speaking to her on the phone, she's broader than I am when I speak broad. Well, I'm saying that. I, I never used the word Doric. This is something that's kind of coined by linguists in the last wee while. We would say speaking broad, speaking buchan. It's interesting because within the northeast, Doric is an umbrella term. You've got all these sub dialects mm-hmm. and differences in words. And again, it's the outside influences. A good example, I mentioned my aunt. My maternal grandfather was born in Cairnbulg. My maternal grandmother in St. Combs. They're a mile apart. They use different words. My granny would say urhus, but my grandfather would say werhus. Now, wer is much more the Norse term. And again, that's sufficient influence from them mixing with Shetlanders and things like that. Country Doric as opposed to the Fisher Doric, again, is separate in that there's a whole work jargon, if you like. They've got certain Scots words that are only ever used up here. They're they're known to the previous generation. I mean, yes, young people don't tend to speak it. They don't speak it when they know there's adults listening. But they know it. Yeah, I was up at the local shop uh, just a few days ago. Schools had just opened last week. It was a gaggle of little schoolgirls coming and putting their bags down outside. And you could hear them, the broad words interspersing their English. And I thought, oh yes, nice. (laughs) And to explain about uh, how people still keep it going, there's obviously lots of academic research. My academic colleague at Aberdeen, Robert Miller, he's kind of been doing a lot of work on this sub-dialect thing, mm-hmm. the different words and how you can trace a word down the country. In Veralahy School, that's the, the other part of the village next to Cairnbulg. Again, that's a whole story in itself. The school there has always had a sort of activity week that focuses on local language, local traditions, things like that. There's We had the Doric Festival for years in the 1980s and there's a newer sort of evolution of it now called Across the Grain Festival which has been around for the last couple of years Mm -hmm. there have been an explosion during lockdown of online Doric classes and even before that spinning off from our department Elphinstone Institute there were clubs where people would go and they'd be run by local storytellers, local a lady called Jackie Ross, who I know, she's a teacher from uh, originally from Neil Fannin, and she has a few different groups, and they basically they chat, they speak about poetry, they encourage to write their own poetry, they look at certain words, they're just a kind of conversation classes. Mm-hmm. So 
there's definitely that for the Doric, but then it's having a knock-on effect on dialects elsewhere. Because what was intriguing was when I was just outside John's Haven and I was interviewing some of the old folk there, I could hear where the dialect was moving from Aberdeen to Angus. It was the difference in words, and yet this old lady in her 80s, she used a word that I said, oh, my granny would say that. For grass, they say gers. Now, that was the old Scots word. That's in Scots dictionary. That's the word. My, as I say, grandparents used that. And this lady, she said gers. I was like, oh, we say that. But I could hear there's much more Dundonian-type words coming through. The so it was kind of the border. Influx, yeah. It was the border of the language. I'm thinking, this proves that there's more than just one Doric. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating about it. So, yeah, there's definitely things happening. Some of the older folk who were involved way back in the 1980s in promoting it are a bit dubious of it now. And one of my friends, he used to be known as Mr Doric because he had a column in the local paper and whatever. And he thought it shouldn't be in schools because it's making it too prescribed. And yet, there's another friend of mine teacher at um, Banff Academy, he's actually teaching. The SQA have actually got modules in Scots language and it's Jamie Fairbairn, he's using it and I went to visit his class. What I thought was so refreshing was when the children came in and he took the register it, they weren't saying here sir or present, it was like I I'm a year. This is the broad spoken loons and I just thought this is fantastic so I think that class, I mean, they were third years, I think, so they were kind of getting permission to speak broad. But yet, when I spoke to them in dialect, they kind of looked at me it's like, as if to say, oh, you're, you're, you're a stranger, you're not allowed to do that. It's only our teacher that does that. So I can understand what Sandy's saying in that it's not naturalising it enough. That's the thing, when I speak it, it's just how it comes. I don't yeah. sort of put it on. The day I realised that Scots was a separate language to English was when I worked down in Portsmouth in the Hampshire, south of England. They could not understand me. I had to actually speak English. I had mm-hmm. to drop every single Scots word. I had to translate in my head. So I thought, no, nobody will ever tell me that Scots is slang anymore. It is, it's a fascinating marker of the area as well. And I think it's the oral history that is so important to maintain. And I believe you were doing a, a research project on collecting oral history from Aberdeenshire in the northeast. Yeah, I've actually done two of them. Uh, the first one I did was during my PhD. In 2006-2008, I was working with uh, the Shire Council. And it was for Martin Oral History Project, which again was very much community-orientated project, 12 different... I mean, there were heritage groups, family history groups uh, in the Formartin area of Aberdeenshire, and that project led to the creation of an audio archive, which now, really, speaking to the uh, Shire Local Studies librarian just recently, she said, we really need to get these all on an online digital form, not on CD anymore. So, and, and then just... As I say, in the last year, from September onwards, I was working for the Alfredston Institute at Aberdeen University, along with Visit Scotland, and I was going out 
funnily enough, visiting quite a few of my old friends from the For Martin project and then extending it up the way into what would have been historic Bamshire and down into the Mairns and contacting similar groups, heritage groups, tourism societies and that, our Mairns Tourism Association being a good example, seeing how they were working together with their community groups and the plans that they had for new things. So I was learning about the history, the folklore, interviewing some people, interviewing crafters as well. That was a particularly interesting element because obviously uh, traditional crafts are part of the umbrella of folklore. And good example, I uh, found a lady just outside uh, Dice who was a saddle maker. That was her actual training, but she <laughs> worked in leather goods and everything. And she showed me the traditional way of sort of sewing up the saddles and whatever. Uh, and we made a video. Uh, and in the video, it's kind of edited and whatever, but she made a belt to show exactly how you would do it manually. Mm-hmm. So there was all of that. It was a new element for me, and I absolutely loved it. The best thing, of course, was getting the people's side of things, going to the folk themselves, and especially when it was people I knew as well. Mm-hmm. And because I'd known some folk, then it was easier for me to get to meet new people. And as I say, I made a whole lot of new friends in the Mairns, and very, very keen, the people there particularly, to promote their A92 corridor. You mentioned at the very beginning that you have your own company. You've got uh, Hidden Aberdeen Tours, and you've been doing that for 10 years, was it? Uh, Officially nine, but I actually discovered the very first time I took a group of photographer friends out was August uh, August 2010. (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, oh, and that was before I went to Portsmouth. So, yeah, but officially nine. Can you tell us um, what are some of your most popular tours? Right, there are many, and it probably won't surprise you that the crime history ones are the most super popular. In fact, the first two tours I ever wrote were the Old Aberdeen Tour and one I call Blood and Granite, the Murder History Tour which is named after local journalist, the late Norman Adams' book uh, of local true crime, Blood and Granite. And it was so funny because his stepson came on the tour and he was just so delighted and told his mum and she was just so pleased that her husband's work was being used in that way. Um, So true crime one, it kind of covers about 100, about 200 years worth. And there's a route... Beside Pitodry Football Ground, uh, that covers about six or seven murders, all in that area over a period of 100 years. So I call it Murder Central. And people absolutely adore it. They love that more than they love the Halloween shows that we do, the ghost tours, which again, it's more street theatre. But the, when I first did that, the murder tour was the top favourite. It always has been. And then you come on to more stuff that's within living memory, like the Blitz tour. Mm -hmm. Uh, We take a route from Kitty Brewster down into the centre of town that goes round all the sites of where there were bombings. There was a particularly bad bombing raid in 1943, and this is the route of it, some of the route of it. And I have photographs from the police archive that I use uh, to show people. And again, they're shocked the ones, again, your your usual tourist uh, gems, like Old Aberdeen, like Fitty, 
people love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, the crime, the scary stuff, there is definitely a market in dark tourism. There's an appetite for dark tourism. <laughs> well, just look at all the dungeon tours oh, in yeah. Edinburgh. If we, if we ever discovered we had dungeons in Aberdeen, I'm sure mm. we could do very well with those mm. as well. What are some questions that you're asked regularly on your tours? Well, it's not so much people asking. The, the, bit, the most common comment is, I've lived in Aberdeen all my life and I didn't know this was here or I didn't know that. Certainly younger folk. Um, we did one run of what I called the Crime and Punishment Tour. The children particularly wanted to know how folk were punished. So I took great delight in telling them about that we did have, we had a pillory, which was like the stocks, and then things that happened to people just for what you consider a minor crime these days. Mm-hmm. Also, another thing that the children are very interested in, the grave robber, the anatomy, the mm-hmm. sort of body stealing. And uh, I remember going to Tullis School, and this boy pipes up, and he says... Uh, what about the body snatchers? I was like, oh, you want to hear about the workers then? <laughs> so I told him a story that's associated with synthetics, and you could just see their eyes light up. So children like gore and horror as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said earlier on that on some of your tours, the locals would even say that I never knew that this was a thing in Aberdeen or that these types of activities took place. Could you share with us one of the facts or one of the in- Bits of information about an unusual happening. Mm. Well, I think a lot of people don't realise how Aberdeen's built, certainly modern Georgian Aberdeen. So that was the other popular tour, is the Union Street tour. I show them how, when Union Street was built in 1801, the medieval city was very, very hilly, much more so than it is now. The plan was actually from, the idea was from a Glaswegian surveyor called Charles Abercrombie. And he saw the geography of the city and he said the best thing to do would be to bridge the hills. So Union Street's actually built on bridge piers. So what I do, I show folk, go down Carnegie's Bray, past the Tunnels nightclub and say, look, you're underneath St Nicholas Street at this point. And they're like, oh, right. And I said, yeah, the bridge you're standing in is 200 years old. And they are, they're shocked. Then you can go into the green. Underneath the backwind stairs, which used to be covered up, there are the vaults. Because Abercrombie's other bright idea was in the valleys between the, the house, the hills, was to make them storage spaces to get the council more rent. As simple as that. <laughs> so that's a very good one. And quite a few folk don't realise that Lord Byron went to school in Aberdeen. When he was wee Doddy Gordon, his mother, uh, Catherine Gordon of Gecht, she'd been abandoned by his father, um, Jack Byron, who was a drunk and a philanderer. He'd gone off spending Catherine's money. So the two of them, Catherine had to sell her castle to her cousin, at Haddo, Gecht Castle, and they came to live in a little... set of apartments in Broad Street and he went to the old grammar school and especially if I'm down in England and I tell people that they're like wow yes Byron was more Scottish than he was English he definitely considered himself Scottish so that's that's (laughs) definitely two interesting facts the city of Aberdeen is built with granite and we're often known as the granite city but those aren't the only things that Aberdeen and Aberdonians are known for Mm -hmm. So I believe one of your tours uh, 
takes us through the history and some stories of notable Aberdeen residents? That's actually the substance of a new book, and certainly I'm always mentioning the people of interest. One of the best tours for speaking about certainly what women of Aberdeen did is my suffragettes and other local quines tour. And on that, I have the delight of speaking about a few amazing pioneering women, including a lady who was Dame Louisa Lumsden. She was born in the property which is now called the Monkey House. Grandfather's Georgian townhouse that stood on that site, that's where she was born. She went on to become one of the first women graduates of Cambridge, known as uh, the Girton Group. And in 1877, she went to St Andrews as the headmistress of the first women's preparatory school for university. The young women that didn't like her very brusque, uh, bolshy style of teaching as well, because she was wanting to push these women to be as good as the men, because she had the experience of when she was at Cambridge of being pushed by a very pushy sort of tutor, a female tutor, who again, she started to recognise why the woman was pushing them. And she did the same. And she also ended up uh, being the first female warden of a hall of residence in St Andrews at university. When women were eventually allowed to go to university in the 1890s, again, this was giving them somewhere to board. So she was acting as sort of the, the warden, the housemistress. And again, her determination to push, she was way ahead of her time. So there was her, another person who got a damehood, but again, not for what she pioneered in, Maria Ogilvy Gordon, she was the first woman geologist and she was uh, born in Aberdeen. Uh, she again was one of the first to get a BSc and then get a Doctor of Science from UCL in London and then she met, now I really was delighted to find this, uh, find this out, but a lecturer uh, at was it? it was Berlin University, I think, and uh, Baron von Richthauen. And he's the uncle of the famous Red Baron, the fighter pilot. Uh, so von Richthofen, he was interested in alpine plants and whatever. So he invited her to come on a research trip to the Southern Tyrol. And she ended up, out of her, what became her PhD, publishing the first geological record of the Dolomites in 1927. And then we have a lot of medical pioneers amongst the men. Jump right up to date, 1961, you've got Mike Tunstall, doctor, and he created what became known as Entinox, which of course saved a lot of women uh, labour pains and again helped people at accidents. They're the paramedics' main painkiller today. And he... To mix gaseous oxygen and liquid nitrogen, he went to a local ice cream factory to get them to chill his uh, containers. So Donald's Ice Cream Factory, who used to have a, a factory down in Virginia Street in Aberdeen, they contributed to the making of Intanox. <laughs> there should be a plaque to them. And then another important thing, everybody remembered what a scare MRSA was, but the man who discovered a streptococcusaurus was an Aberdeen doctor as well, Alexander Oxton. And the little irony there is not only did he discover it and get a knighthood for it, 
His grandfather, great-grandfather and grandfather, had been the founders of Oxton and Tennant Soap and Candle Factory in Aberdeen. In 1911, Oxton and Tennant was taken over by Lever Group, and Lever sold carbolic soap. And Oxton also introduced carbolic spray into Aberdeen Royal Infirmary when it was at Woolman Hill, because he was a friend of Joseph Lister, and this aseptic surgery has described it. So... It all went in a circle. Life Boy Soap is carbolic soap. So I think that, again, even those four people, uh, amount of the 50 people I've covered in my new book, it's absolutely amazing. I'll mention as well that uh, with each episode of the podcast, there will be more information available in a separate blog post, which can be found on our website and we'll put links to your books there as well. So if anybody wants to read more about that, they can get that information from there. Is there anything that you would like to add? What I found throughout being a tour guide, I have tended to slant more towards local customers. And people have always said to me they really appreciate knowing what's under their feet, what's above their eye level. Mm-hmm. I was having a conversation on Facebook this morning about the Tollbooth clock. This lady had just noticed it. I said, that clock's actually about 300 years old. She was saying, oh, but it's hidden by the, the granite top of sort of the Victorian townhouse. Well, yeah, it's true. But I was learned from library school onwards to look up uh, because that was where... That's interesting because that's actually where I got my... The love that I had of places and the what was there before... So I would always encourage people, look up, look down, look around you. So, I mean, I tell people an awful lot on tours, and they do say that sometimes they have to come two, three times to get the, the good of it. But there's so many stories that I want to fit in yeah. in that sort of two-hour route. So really, I would encourage people, look about you, read, ask questions. That's really what appreciating who we are is about. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you this morning and to have a chance to speak to you about the local history. And let's hope that soon we'll be able to go back out on tour. Absolutely. Thank you very much.